Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. The Lord be with you, everyone. Hey, can you believe that this is our 19th week in 1 Corinthians? Yeah, we've been working together on this. We've been reading Paul's email now for 19 weeks together. In that time, there were some parts in this letter that were just beautiful and so inspiring. You know, the stuff, the the love chapter, the stuff about how the body of Christ works together, the stuff about spiritual gifts and the resurrection. Some of it was hard to read, I know. You know, worldliness and the stuff about immorality and even incest and lawsuits and idolatry and then, you know, the things about the role of women in the church. That was, those things, those were hard to read. And they would, be, they would be tough to take if they didn't come from the Apostle Paul. You know, one of the things that strikes me when I think about Paul is he's just a guy. You know, I, I certainly would never want to minimize anything that Paul went through in his ministry. He, he suffered. He, I know, you know, he was beaten. He was arrested and stoned and persecuted. And I'm not minimizing anything that he accomplished either. You know, through Paul, God did amazing things. We will probably never know how many people are in the kingdom because of the Apostle Paul. But at the same time, you know, it's interesting. There's actually nothing fundamentally different between Paul and any of us. Like he has no powers that we don't have. He's just a guy. And because of that, it's it's natural to wonder, how did he do what he did? Like, what's his secret? And I think that in lots of ways, that can be coming from a good place. But sometimes that question is not coming from a good place. And I learned that back in 2017 when Heather and I were in Montreal for a church planting assessment. Think of it as, think of it as a week-long interview with 20 other church planting teams to see who has what it takes and who does not. And the worst part of the assessment for me was an exercise called Dragon's Den Church Planter Edition. And the exercise works like this. You've got three judges who have $100,000 in fake money to invest in one church plant. And to win, you, as the church planting team, have to impress the judges. You've got to explain your mission and your vision and your story, and, and you have to prove that you can preach. It's almost like American Idol, except the audition is a 10-minute sermonette instead of a song. And it became pretty clear to me early on that whoever's going to win this contest is going to be the church planting team who can show these judges that their church is going to be the next Mars Hill or Harvest or Willow Creek. If you promise to provide that kind of a church, you are likely to win. Now, I'm not a competitive person. Some of you would know I'm also not a rule follower, and I utterly, like fundamentally disagree with the mentality that in church bigger is better, that we need to do more with less, that if a church is, is like, you know, cool and sexy, then people will come and be interested in Jesus. I fundamentally disagree with that. Except the only way to, to win this contest is by playing the game. You know, we had to show that we, we knew the secret. We knew the hack. We could make it happen. Almost like they would reward us for showing that we don't need to rely on the Holy Spirit. Well, we didn't win. You, you won't be surprised to hear. We passed the assessment. Like at the end of the week, they green lit our church plant idea. But we didn't win that contest. 
And to be honest, we weren't too upset about it. But but that's why I want to end this study of 1 Corinthians here in chapter 2. Like of all the places in the letter, this is where Paul answers the question, what's the secret? And so today, I want to give Paul a chance just to retell the story of what he did, how revival came to Corinth, okay? And as he tells this story, he's going to have us look in four directions. He's going to start by looking backward, and then looking upward, and then forward, and then inward, okay? So Paul's going to have us look backward, upward, forward, and inward, all right? Now, let's just jump in. At the beginning of the chapter, Paul looks backward, and some might assume that if you're going to if you're going to, you know, make an impact on your city for Jesus, you need to prepare an amazing presentation. You got to be armed with just an amazing presentation. And Paul's like, nope, nope. And so in this section, Paul goes back to when he first arrived in Corinth. And some of the people there expected him to impress them with his presentation. And, and Paul has a decision to make. Well, all right, like, how am I going to make my mark on this town? And, and what he did is the opposite of what you would hear at, at church planting boot camp. Because those judges would be like, well, does he have brilliant speech or wisdom? Nope. Paul says, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. And the judges might ask, well, does, uh, does he impress us? Does this guy have, is he, does he have strength and courage and confidence? Paul's like, no. Verse 3, I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. The judges might go, well, is there anything persuasive about this guy? Anything impressive? Paul's like, no. Verses 4 and 5, Paul says, My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. This theme of God's wisdom comes up so many times in this chapter, but it's, it's not Paul's wisdom that people should be impressed with, but God's wisdom. And so, so what's Paul's secret? Well, he, he tells us, verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you. No secret, no hack, no clue, no code. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Like, that's it. People are like, what do you mean that's it? How can that be it? Paul's like, no, that's, that's it. That's exactly it. And to, so to make an impact on a town, you don't need to have an impressive presentation. All I did was share the gospel. I told people about Jesus and the spirit did his thing. That's it. Some folks would be like, well, there must be more to it than that. Come on, Paul. And so in the next section, Paul looks upward. He looks upward. And, and we might assume that in order to make an impact for Jesus on a city, surely you've got you've to get the influencers of the town on side. You know, you've got you've to impress the influential, important people, and you've got to gain their vote. You've got to gain their endorsement. And Paul's like, no. Uh, what he says in verse 6 is, We do, however, speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom that God predestined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You hear that? You hear what Paul's saying here? He's saying the rulers of this age didn't get it. Like the wisest philosophers and 
influencers, they didn't foresee the wisdom of God. Like God predestined it. He, he put this plan in motion. Like there was this, this conversation. The Father, Son, and Spirit made this plan. The Trinity had this conversation and came up with this plan where the Son will become human. And he will live and teach uh, among us. And he will suffer and die in our place as a substitute. And sin will be forgiven. And he will destroy death and Satan and sin and rise from the dead as the earth's true Lord. And that is something that none of the influencers ever expected. None of them expected that to be God's plan. In fact, it was the wise and the influencers of the world who put Jesus to death. Verse 8, Paul says, None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Like Paul doesn't need anybody's endorsement, least of all the very types of people who put Jesus on the cross. For Paul, the gospel is enough. It is enough to share the gospel in the power of the Spirit. That's it. Well, in, in the next part, Paul looks forward. He looks forward because we might assume, if, if nothing else, surely you need, need a brilliant, sharp mind. Like you need to be able to solve mysteries and, you know, solve puzzles and, and put the clues together. And, and, and so surely if we want to make an impact on our town, we need to, you know, uncover the mystery and tell people what God's going to do in the future. And Paul's like, no, guys. Like, I didn't figure this out. I didn't solve this mystery. It was revealed to me. He says it was revealed. Verse 9, Paul says, What no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived, God has prepared these things for those who love him. Do you hear that? No eye or ear or heart can handle what God has in store. We're not ready for it. Verse 10, Now God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit, since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except his Spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So do you hear that? Paul's saying, nobody's ready for this. Nobody's ready for what God has in store for those who love him. Like, it's going to blow their minds. We will all be surprised. It's not like we can put the clues together, you know, and then bring it to the city and say, here's what's going to happen, y'all. No, nobody can fathom it. No one can fathom, not even Paul. Not even Paul. And so there's no trick. There's no shortcut. There's just a, there's just a person, the Holy Spirit, revealing the truth to people's hearts. And I can hear the judges going like, oh, come on, it can't be that simple, Paul. If it were, if it were that simple, everybody would share the gospel and we wouldn't need there to be apostles and people like you. And that's why in this section, Paul looks inward. Paul looks inward. The assumption here is, surely if we're going to make an impact on our town, we need some impressive qualifications, like, we know you, Paul. You are educated. You are a Pharisee of Pharisees. You have got experience teaching. You've got connections in, uh, in all the towns of the empire. You used to be a bounty hunter for the Sanhedrin, for goodness sake. Don't tell us there's no secret. We know what your secret is. It's that you've got qualifications. Paul says, no, you guys. All I know how to do is talk about Jesus. That's it. And, and if anybody's interested, I'll talk. 
I think, I think that's really interesting. Let me just ask, show of hands, how many people here, how many of you can name, can, can think of a subject that you could talk about for 10 minutes without any prep? Okay, like there's a subject that without any, any lead time, without any warning, you could talk about that subject for 10 minutes. How many of you could do that? Yeah, right? Subjects might be like gardening or birds or, or craft beer or engines or fine scotch or literature or music and movies and sports. Maybe a favorite TV show, maybe interior design. Of course you could. Like when we believe that people are interested, we can share forever about what we love right? And so the question isn't, are we qualified? The question is, who's interested? It's who's interested. See, Paul says, verse 12, now we've not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God so that we may understand what's been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit. Listen to this, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. But the person without the Spirit doesn't receive what comes from God's Spirit because it's foolishness to him. He's not able to understand it since, he's evalu- it since it is evaluated spiritually. The spiritual person, however, can evaluate everything, and yet he himself cannot be evaluated by anybody. For who has known the Lord's mind that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Paul's job is simple. He says, verse 13, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. Like, that's what I do. I explain spiritual things to spiritual people. That's it. Now, you and I know, not everyone will be. Some people just aren't interested, right? So verse 14, Paul says, for that person, it's foolishness to him, so he, he is not able to understand it. And so that's fine. When, you're, when we're interacting with people who aren't yet spiritual, what do you do? You punish them for not being spiritual? Do you, do you uh, ignore them? No, of course not. You love them. You pray for them. You're a good neighbor to them. But sometimes when you look and you listen to people around you, you realize, oh my goodness, God has been at work in this person. They are interested. This is a spiritual person. You know, they've been awakened by the spirit of God. And, and that's a person who, that's a different kind of person. They see the world through a different lens. Verse 15, Paul says, the spiritual person can evaluate, or other versions say can judge. Uh, Literally, this means they can approve or disapprove things. And yet, Paul says, he himself cannot be judged or approved or evaluated by anyone. So Paul's saying there is no secret. There's There's no trick. Paul doesn't create spiritual people. The spirit does that. Paul's job is to love people, to pray for them, to, to look for interested people. And, and then when he finds them, he talks about what comes naturally, which is the Lord. Mission really is that simple. Now, just to show that it's that simple, some of you would know that a few weeks ago, my neighbor Joshua was standing out on his porch and he saw me for the first time in a while. He called me over. He had just gotten back from a long stay in the hospital where he'd been really sick and he nearly died. And while he was there, you know, God did something and he came back changed. And he's like, Mike, I got to tell you something. God is real. Jesus has been with me all along. I want to get to know him. I want to learn. What do I do? <laughs> I'm like, what? Now, I don't, I don't consider myself to be a particularly gifted evangelist. But to tell you the truth, in that moment, it doesn't matter. 
in that moment, all I know is I'm face to face with a spiritual person. And and I don't need a brilliant presentation. I don't need, you know, wise, persuasive words. I just ask him some questions. I listen to his story. And then I just said, you know what? Let's talk to God. Tell him what you just told me. And he gave him, he gave his life to Christ. It wasn't me doing that. The spirit was already at work. All I would, I was just along for the ride. And, and let me tell you something. When, when you have a few families who have that experience in common, we call that a church. A church is a group of families and people who have in common that they belong to Jesus. That's a church. Now, when that happens on a larger scale, like when it happens, when a bunch of people give their lives to Christ at about the same time, you know what we call that? We call that a revival. Now, I don't know if, you've, if you know this or not, but we've seen revival in Hamilton before. How many of you have heard of the revival of 1857? So in those days, Hamilton was in, a, in pretty rough shape. Hamilton had been hit hard by a cholera epidemic. The churches and the businesses are closed. People are staying home. In fact, it's really interesting to, to see how parallel the cholera epidemic of the 1850s and the COVID pandemic of the 2020s are sort of parallel, you know? But, uh, you know, earlier in, in uh, 1857, there was a train that went off of a bridge near Coots Paradise and 59 people died. This was a hard year, but God was at work. And, and so that September, just up the road in Georgetown, the, uh, the Methodists had gotten together and organized an outdoor revival meeting. 5,000 people showed up. The preacher at the meeting was a woman named Phoebe Palmer, and she came here from New York. Now, that's important. Now, when it was done, Phoebe Palmer and her family, they're supposed to head back to New York and stop in Hamilton briefly just to get their luggage. Except the luggage train never came. And so here she is. She and her family are in Hamilton with a handful of people uh, who nobody knows who they are. But these, these Methodist friends of hers suggest, hey, you know what, Sister Palmer? Maybe, maybe this is God's doing. Maybe God is in this. Why not stick around and let's see what God does? So that was September. On October 8th, they had the first prayer meeting in a, in a church basement. 65 people came who were nervous because they don't want to get in trouble for breaking the cholera rules. And, and at the end of that meeting, half of them pledged that they're going to pray regularly and fervently for revival in Hamilton. Well, they have another prayer meeting the next day. At this prayer meeting, this time, 21 people give their lives to Jesus. And over the next few weeks... Phoebe Palmer and the Methodists lead these daily prayer meetings day and night and hundreds of people gave their lives to Jesus, including Hamilton's mayor. Okay? Almost as many people came to faith in Jesus during that revival as had died of cholera in the years before. And they call this, they call this the Hamilton Revival of 1857. All right? Historians consider this the start of what became the Third Great Awakening, which spread from Canada down into the U.S. and across the sea into Great Britain. And, you know, there's people whose lives were changed during, the, during this revival. They went on and, and started the YMCA. They started the Salvation Army. Down in the United States, 
the one of the results of this revival was it it, it uh, led to the Civil War actually, and that ended slavery and led to equal rights for women in in a lot of these places. And here in Hamilton, the Methodist churches blew up by a thousand percent, a thousand percent increase in attendance in the Methodist churches. Which, by the way, is why there are so many massive buildings in Hamilton that are part of the United Church. Uh, but I want you to imagine for a second. Okay, suppose Phoebe Palmer gets off the train in Hamilton and she realizes that her luggage isn't here and then she gets the invitation to stick around and and see what God will do. Imagine she said, I don't know, you guys, I don't have my presentation ready. Like I wasn't planning on a ministry in Hamilton. I don't know the people of Hamilton. I don't know who the influencers are. I'm not really that sharp. I don't think I'm ready for this thing. I don't think I'm qualified. I am just a woman after all. I mean, she could have said that. Or suppose she said, oh, you know what, guys? I hope you understand. I'm just, I'm really bummed about my luggage. I'm really discouraged. I'm really tired. I'm just so wiped out from what we did in Georgetown. I think if it's okay with you guys, I'm just going to go home to New York with my family. I just could really use some family time. Now, nobody would blame her for that, right? Totally understandable. But here she was stuck in Hamilton. She's face to face with spiritual people who are interested in what she has to say. All she has to do is say yes. And she did. And to tell you the truth, I can easily imagine any of us in her position doing the very same thing she did. Saying yes when the Holy Spirit opened the door. And and for that reason, I can easily imagine revival coming to Hamilton again. I can. Can't you? Here we are on the other end of a pandemic. You know, the city's eager to get back to life. But maybe, maybe the way of life that we used to know is gone. Maybe the pandemic has changed things. Maybe our neighbors are hungry. Maybe they're more spiritually interested than we realize. And if the Spirit did bring revival in Hamilton today, you know what? Not only would we see people join the kingdom, and we would, and that would be amazing, but we would see a renewal of of passion among God's people. And we would see God's people unleashed to bless the city of Hamilton and make an impact on poverty and things like child hunger and addictions and gang violence and prostitution and mental health might all be affected if people found hope in Christ and knew the love of Jesus and found peace through loving, authentic community in the church. And you know what's interesting about the revival of 1857? One of the things that interests me about this was, was that only the Methodist churches really saw the growth. You know, like there were a lot of Baptist churches in, the, in those days, and Presbyterians and Anglicans and Catholic churches, but they were basically unaffected by the revival. Now, why is that? Now, I'm, I'm not suggesting they don't trust God or they don't believe in the Spirit of God, what he's capable of. But I do know that when the Spirit is at work, there are people who join him and say yes. And there are some people who resist. And there are some people who watch from the sidelines with suspicion. But here in Hamilton, Phoebe Palmer and the Methodists in 1857 do what the Apostle Paul did in Corinth in AD 57. They're saying yes to the Spirit. And and that leads to transformed lives. And every single new life in Christ has a ripple effect that can't be measured, but is going to go on and on into eternity.
And friends, for that reason, I want to end this study of 1 Corinthians where Paul does. Uh, because here, at the end of the letter, Paul looks outward. He looks outward. Come with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 16. Now, this is the part of the letter that we often skip, but this is good stuff. These names, these are the story. Paul has no idea if he's going to see these people again. Okay, but listen, he he has a whole list of shout outs. He begins by telling them in chapter 16, after I go through Macedonia, I will come to you. Perhaps I'll stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Verse 10, when Timothy comes. Yep, the same Timothy, that Timothy. When, when Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he's with you. For he's carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one should treat him with any contempt. Send, send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. Verse 12, now about our brother Apollos. Yeah, that Apollos. Paul had a lot to say about Apollos at the beginning of the letter. Paul says, I strongly urged him to go with you. I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. Verse 15, you know that the household of Stephanus... You know, they were the first converts in Achaia and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord. Yes, you know Aquila and Priscilla, the same ones that Paul had been talking about early in the letter and in the book of Acts. They greet you warmly in the, in the Lord and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, if anyone doesn't love the Lord, let that person be cursed. But come, Lord, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Do you see here, like, do you see how people matter to Paul? Like these people, they are important people. They're key to the revival in Corinth. Without them, there is no First Corinthians but you know what I hear when Paul talks about them and talks to them? He, I hear Paul's love. I hear affection. I hear longing for them. This isn't a list of people who are going to help put Paul on the map. Okay, This isn't a list of people who are going to help make Corinth the biggest and best and most successful church. This is a love letter to people who matter deeply to him. And they are the proof that there is no secret there is no secret, just a person, the Holy Spirit, energizing and empowering the sharing of the gospel. They are the proof of it, and so are we. So are we. For every follower of Jesus, every one of us who is a follower of Jesus, at some point, somebody saw in you that the Holy Spirit had been at work. And that person, or those people, taught us. 
They walked with us. They journeyed with us and shared the Lord with us. And now here we are. And you know, a few years ago, we read this letter together in the Molesky living room. And we had some important conversations about what sort of disciples we need to be in order to live this out and what sort of a church we need to be in order to live this out. And we, were, we started praying about it and, and dreaming that someday it's going to be in Hamilton as it is in heaven. And we knew then that as beautiful as that vision is, that's not actually our job. Like that's not in our power to do. If it's going to happen, the Holy Spirit is going to be the one who does it. And he is inviting us today just as he did in Corinth, first to love our neighbors, to love all our neighbors, whether they are spiritual or not. And let's pray for them. Let's pray for them. Pray for the Spirit to make them curious and spiritually hungry. And let's look and listen for spiritual people. Let's be ready to tune in and pay attention to where God's Spirit is at work. And then let's be prepared to talk about him Right? To talk about the Lord with those people who are spiritual, who will listen. And then let's talk about the Lord. Let's be prepared to talk about Jesus with those interested people who are spiritual and who will listen. Let me be really clear. You know what, guys? Nobody, no one expects us to do the job of the Holy Spirit. But it turns out any one of us might be somebody else as Apostle Paul. And and that seems to me like a really good place for us to end this series. Let's pray together, okay? Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven. Thank you.